You're listening to WRFI, listener-supported community radio from the heart of the Finger Lakes. This is The Scene, and I'm your host, Chantal Thomas. The Scene is a locally programmed show on WRFI that is an audio magazine covering an eclectic mix of politics, arts, culture, law, and issues of the day. You can find current and past episodes of The Scene on the local programs page at wrfi.org. For this week's episode, I spoke with Saida Hodzic, a professor of anthropology and feminist, gender, and sexuality studies at Cornell University, who is organizing a collaborative effort to critically reorient the fields of asylum and refugee studies from studies of refugees to critical studies of refuge. Professor Hodzic organized a path-breaking symposium in the spring of 2023 called Displaced, Detained, Undeterred, The Violence of Uncertain Refuge. That gathering brought together scholars, artists, and organizers who understand the violence of displacement deeply to investigate how borders, militarized imperialisms, and colonial genealogies shape people's lives and foreclose right to both home and refuge. In today's episode, we'll get to hear Professor Hodzic's opening remarks from that meeting, and then I'll speak with her from her current location in Bosnia, where she is conducting research and fieldwork. So first, here is a clip from Professor Hojic's earlier remarks, where she began by playing a song, Mi Querido, Mi Amado, that beautifully ties together many of the themes informing her work on critical studies of refuge. Quiero verte y nada más. 
everybody and welcome. My name is Saida Hojic and I'm um, one of the main organizers of this symposium. I wanted to start with a song because music touches parts of ourselves that words alone do not reach and we can feel more of ourselves and that's also one purpose of this symposium. We're gathered here to create a space for bringing more of ourselves into academic and public conversations that don't generally tend to allow displaced people their full histories, narratives, or subjectivities. And I wanted to start with this particular song to welcome you into part of my world and to weave together some of the layers of this symposium. This song, Mi Querido, Mi Amado, is performed by two artists from my hometown in Mostar, which is in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The lyrics are in the song's original language, Judeo-Espanol, which is the language of Sephardic Jews who came to, jo to Bosnia when refusing to be forcibly assimilated and converted to Christianity, they were expelled from what is now Spain in 1492. The same king and queen who expelled Jews also finances, financed Columbus's expedition and the ensuing colonization, murderous rule, displacement, enslavement, and forced labor of indigenous people on this continent. Spain's expulsion of Jews was followed by an expulsion of some 3 million Muslims to North Africa, and subsequently the expulsion, torture, and enslavement of Roma. The Sephardic Jews who brought this song to Bosnia resettled throughout the Mediterranean Ottoman Empire, many in the Balkans. Um, and something that I didn't know growing up is that actually before the Nazi Holocaust, a fifth of the population of the Bosnian capital was Jewish. I first heard this song in Judeo-Espanol lyrics 10 years ago at a performance in the Jewish Museum in Sarajevo that I went to with my family. My sister had moved to Sarajevo earlier that year after two decades spent as a refugee in Germany. My sister's attempt of returning to not quite but almost home worked for a decade until it didn't. And something that we're learning this weekend together is that displacement is an ongoing condition long after war's end. The histories of displacement brought forth by the song, Mi Querido, Mi Amado, gestured towards one experiment that we might undertake in this symposium, namely an offering to what my colleague at Cornell, Mohammed Abdu, calls a 1492 project. 1492 was a watershed moment and a catalyst for displacement, though not a singular or only one. As I see it, a 1492 project understands the European conquest of overseas territories genocidal settler colonialism and resulting displacement is co-constituted with forced assimilation, expulsion, and fantasies of purification within Europe itself. This logic is reanimated today. The deadly border zones that the EU has been constructing around and beyond its perimeters are the same borders across which people were expelled five centuries ago, and some of the same people are being expelled. 
this logic has, of course, been deterritorialized, adopted and adapted around the world. And thinking through these historical genealogies illuminates the contemporary moment when we witness the unprecedented production of refugees and simultaneous foreclosure of refuge and survival. It makes it clear that what we're up against is a global project that refuses to name itself, a project that intertwines racial capitalism with racial militarism and deadly border politics, and that limits access to rights of mobility, residence, benefits, and survival. This is WRFI Community Radio, and you're listening to The Scene. I'm your host, Chantal Thomas. If you're just tuning in, we've been listening to Saida Hodjic in her opening remarks for her symposium, Displaced, Detained, Undeterred, The Violence of Uncertain Refuge, that convened at Cornell University in the spring of 2023. I spoke with Professor Hodjic earlier this week from her current research location in Bosnia about what inspired her to organize the symposium and her commitment to creating space for a critical refugee studies collective. Thank you so much, Saida, for speaking with me today. really appreciate it. And um, I'm speaking to you. You're currently in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where you're conducting some research, speaking with collaborators. Is that right? That's right, yeah. What was the inspiration for this symposium? I've been tinkering with this idea for a while that if we join forces, if multiple people join forces, they can say and do more daring things than if we do something on our own. And so this is especially the case when, you know, what we have to say disrupts either some common ways of speaking about a certain subject or particular narratives or both. In in my case, writing about displacement and about the power structures that govern displacement and that foreclose refuge from the experience, from the historical experience, but not reducing that experience, not reducing my words to that experience of a former refugee. Um, I met so many different kinds of obstacles that I felt that Uh, rather than battling the institution and the kind of scholarship that already exists, I wanted to help make space for different kinds of knowledge, different kinds of scholarship, different kinds of voices, and to do it collectively. And so the symposium is uh, is one of the efforts um, in the way, is one of the ways uh, to achieve that. You began your remarks with this beautiful song, Mikairo Miyamaro, and the song had an incredible history behind it. And I was so moved by both the beauty of the song, your and your thoughts around what the history was and how it connects to the themes of your work. And, and also aesthetically, the, uh, the gesture to other or the ways of experiencing sort of like music and like mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. But that for you. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the song that you opened your remarks with. Yeah, sure. Um, 
This is a song that is sung in Judeo-Espanol, or some people also just call it Espanol, um, which is the language of Sephardic Jews uh, who came to Bosnia after they were expelled from Spain, um, starting concentrating rather in 1492. And um, I use this song to connect histories of many places and to connect the past and the present. So the song, this particular version especially means a lot to me um, because it's a song that I grew up listening to in Bosnian language, not so much in Judeo-Espanol. And when I first heard it, in Judeo-Espanol, it was um, surprising. It was a decade ago, and um, I didn't even know that that's where the song had come from. And so to me, that speaks to a certain kind of erasure of histories, right, that, that some communities carry with them and then that get, that get forgotten. And so as you know, as you mentioned earlier, I'm in Bosnia now, and what I see today in the world, what I see at the border of Bosnia, is uh, is people being stopped on their way to the EU and prevented from making claims on asylum. So Bosnia is one of EU's external borders, and it's made into kind of a border bordering zone where you have militarized technologies as well as illegal and violent um, pushbacks. So one of my interests is in showing that from particular places, how histor historical circumstances and political circumstances that govern who can have, who gets displaced, mm -hmm. that govern who becomes subject to war and displacement, who gets refuge, who doesn't, that there's certain commonalities to them, there's patterns to them, that they're connected. And so what I see through this song or what I was trying to do by mentioning um, this song or by interviewing it is to show that um, the year itself, 1492, is a year in which um, what Europe looks like and who belongs to this Christianizing Europe ends up uh, reconfiguring the content. And at the same time, this is the Europe that starts colonizing um, the Americas and then later other parts of the world. And so this song connects territories as different as Bosnia to Cornell University that is built on the site of uh, displacement of indigenous peoples in ways that are difficult to... Um, that are sometimes difficult for people to imagine. And so um, my larger interest, I think, that drives a lot of, a lot of my current thinking is in showing um, these connections. The identification of these buffer states and the way in which you know, uh, other states are being deputized to enforce immigration policy in the periphery of the EU and also, of course, the US. A lot of it seems to be about making it less visible, the process of exclusion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of those states are also, in one way or another, post-war states. So Guatemala um, was being summoned as one of the spaces um, where people could be deported to, and then we have Rwanda in Africa um, as one of the one as one of the states that becomes a buffer zone that the UK and the EU, um, but also the US, are drawing on. And so these are also countries that are not 
colonized necessarily, but there are countries that are also not fully sovereign. And so they have to accept these conditions under which they become mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the holding zones for refugees from all over the world. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about a couple of the, just the really striking statements that you made in your remarks. One was, was a, a part where you you say the voices of displaced people should not only be wanted as voices of experience and should not mm-hmm. be sent when they have critical thought that exceeds what is allowed. You're speaking to almost a politics of, of tone or a politics of, of gratitude, maybe, that that you were describing that encountering when you were trying to do the work of critical thinking and research around refuge and that you were sort of encountering this kind of tension and resistance that you really need to make sure that you seem grateful, like not too grateful. Don't be embarrassing, but just grateful enough. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm kind of, now I'm putting words in your mouth, but I just thought that was so strange. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's quite common. It's, and I, and I love how you put it, it's politics of tone. And I would also say it's politics of inclusion. And I mm. think it's quite common to include on particular kinds of terms, the voices of refugees. And so what those terms are, are you should speak of your experience, but that experience should be reduced to the experience of suffering primarily in the other country, let's say where there's war or some other disaster or catastrophe or you know protracted even structural suffering, and perhaps uh, to the experience of the escape itself of crossing borders or um, making it somewhere like the trip, the journey. But it then ends. So what we do not, what people are not invited to speak of is the experience of arrival and of the struggles in the countries of arrival, the countries that are supposed to oblige to provide refuge or access to refuge and asylum and so on, mm-hmm. where so much of suffering that actually takes place in terms of bureaucratic violence, in terms of structural uh, economic exploitation coupled with so much insecurity, around uh, legal legality, illegality, uh, criminalization, and so on and so forth. Um, And so the narrative is, uh, certain narratives are then invited and others are foreclosed. Um, And along with that, certain subject positions are also invited. So, you know, one can invite an activist who is a refugee or just somebody who had been a refugee to speak of something. So, you know, I'm, I've been asked multiple times, do you know somebody who can, who's experienced war or genocide or something like that? Yes, of course, I, I know tons of people <laughs> I could recommend, but I also know some scholars. <laughs> so I recommend then people who not just have had those experiences, but are also scholars or writers <laughs> or activists and who have critical perspectives so that one doesn't fill this slot, this experience slot as a kind of narration of suffering, but that so that people can actually um, speak including about suffering, but also about, you know, other kinds of things and have perspectives that that exceed that which is kind of being invited. And so, yes, absolutely. There's, there's issues of tone as well. um, What one is allowed to say, how far one is allowed to go. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where things get tricky, right? The institutionalization 
of particular kinds of refugee assistance for many decades objectified refugees. I think this is true for other groups of people as well, but there's kind of this striking movement in the last five to 10 years for people who are former refugees to say, you know what, we can also organize on our own and we do not have to just be employed within the existing structures. We can create our own structures. And so that's something that's interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's so key. I think you're right. I think that there's not a lot of, I mean, obviously you are right and you know much better than I, but but there's not, not a lot of appetite to hear how difficult it is for folks when they, when they get to, um, the country, you know, of, of, uh, re resettlement. Um, and, um, um, that, that is connected to, and, and I guess there are many ways of not hearing. So, you know, earlier you were talking mm-hmm. about, um, wanting to also connect, um, and break out. I think part of what you do there too, is you, you're sort of insisting on, that we can't only think about the refugee populations that to us seem the most palatable or, you know, the, the most assimilable or, um, you know, seem like they will be, you know, the most preferred guests, you know, so Mm -hmm. we can't only, and obviously at the moment it's Ukraine, what's going on there obviously is, is horrendous. Um, but, many, many have pointed to the disparity between how um, refugees and asylum seekers from, from Ukraine might be viewed in the European context versus others. And, and so insisting on making those connections and you have this you know, very striking passage in your remarks where you t- talk about the connections between racial capitalism, racial militarism and deadly border politics. And you're sort of urging us to see um, again, going back to what we were discussing earlier, the connections between um, these different modes of displacement, um, both you know, both elsewhere and here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to to kind of instrumentalize the refugee as the figure that's being saved from from elsewhere in which one is not implicated, like in the US context, right? So, and then to forget what that does on the one hand to other kinds of refugees who are not being offered the opportunity to to survive really, or who are foreclosed the opportunity to survive. And as well as to what it does to the ongoing displacement um, of people's within the United States. And so the refugee figure can become and often is used as a way of kind of cleansing the sins of of the United States um, in terms of its own genocidal politics. And so um, I wanted, because this is kind of, for me, also an epistemological project, I wanted to make sure to mention that, that, you know, one of the difficulties that I hear a lot of people experiencing is not just sort of the making it in the country of asylum, of refuge, of resettlement, but realizing that when you've made it, that you've become a part of a structure and can be used within that structure with or without your consent in ways that are actually violent to others. For somebody who's not familiar, like what, what does that look like? Sure, sure. What that means, yes, of course. 
well, I can think of with respect to race, um, Bosnians, for instance, were seen within Europe as so many Bosnians, not all, but especially those who were Muslim, as a particular kind of threat. And the war in Bosnia was a war that was not just ethnicized, but also racialized because of this, this phantasmatic idea of the threat of Islam. Um, actually, I would say shaped how the war unfolded. But once Bosnians moved to the United States, who were resettled, and over, around 100,000 people were resettled, who were not given refuge in Germany specifically. So they went from Germany to the US. Um, they are no longer seen as a threat. So the, the Muslimness of so many of them, and not all were, of course, who came, uh, doesn't is no longer a threat. They become absorbed into whiteness. And so many be become um, start identifying with whiteness and unseeing all the structural exclusions they had experienced prior in, in their prior uh, spaces of refuge, as well as in the war itself. And so, whereas their experience in Europe was, in Western Europe was one of being the racialized other in the US, so many of them are not the racialized other. This isn't true for those who are pious because then they're kind of still marked as Muslim. But, you know, for people like me and for so many others, that that just doesn't appear right it's not visible in closing i wanted to ask you to reflect on the quote that you also shared in your remarks from audrey lord that difference should be properly acknowledged as a source of strength and a source of of necessary polarities uh, can you talk a little bit more about what that passage means to you sure um I think oftentimes when people get together who are from different fields and different historical backgrounds, different subjectivities, they look for some common grounds. And I wanted to acknowledge that, or I wanted to put forth this idea that those common grounds do not have to be the grounds of sameness, because there's so much erasure that happens when we look for sameness in people. Um, I think that um, and so for me, that's where Audre Lorde's insistence on difference comes in which is that difference is not, should not be something that we are afraid of, um, that people do have different histories as well as different positions in the world today. If we allow ourselves to go towards differences, then we can, you know, touch really difficult subjects. And for, you know, one of the reasons, and that is kind of the unstated reason behind the song that I played is that, you know, one of the most touchy and difficult subjects that is discussed today is the question of Palestine. And I wanted to say that we can think simul simultaneously, for instance, about the racial politics that produced the Holocaust and at the same time discuss the question of Palestinian refugees and that those differences um, can be at the same table. It's been so great speaking with you. Thank you for making time for this conversation all the way from Bosnia. <laughs> Thank you, Chantal. This is WRFI Community Radio, and you're listening to The Scene. If you're just tuning in, I've been speaking with Professor Saida Hojic, a professor of anthropology and feminist gender and sexuality studies at Cornell University about her work reorienting the fields of asylum and refugee studies 
from studies of refugees to critical studies of refuge. For more information about today's interview, you can visit the homepage for the scene at wrfi.org slash local programs. You've been listening to The Scene, and I'm your host, Chantal Thomas. Thank you for listening.